We are in a series in the book of Corinthians, or the letter of Corinthians, and we are in chapter 6 this morning, and we're going to read 1 through 11, and we're going to also read from Jesus' words in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. So if you're using the Pew Bible, it's helpful to have your Bible open as we go through the sermon Uh, That page is uh, 954 for 1 Corinthians and 900 for John chapter 13. Let's stand together and read God's words. Let's begin with John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? And how much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You may be seated, and let's take a few minutes to reflect together on God's Word. What does it mean that we're going to participate participate in some way in the judgment of angels? Nobody really knows. And so when you read a lot of commentaries about it, they give you some kind of comment back in Daniel or something that Jesus said. And we don't really know what Paul was referring to in that particular line. Um, And so I'm not going to spend time talking about that because that's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is this conflict that people are having inside the church. And it's about lawsuits. They were taking each other to court. And we're familiar with that because we live in a culture that's full of litigation itself. In other words, we, we have a culture that tends towards lawsuits, suing people, 
and taking them to court. It's not just about justice in our life, in our culture. It's also about entertainment. Uh, taking people to court is not just about justice, it's about entertainment. And so we have riveting television like Judge Judy. And so uh, we have a whole um, culture that's bent on lawsuits. And this is very similar to what's happening in Corinth. But the problem when we have a culture that's bent on lawsuits, then you, you have a lot of frivolous lawsuits. And you probably are familiar with some of them. Probably the most famous was the woman who sued McDonald's because she spilled hot, hot coffee on her. And she won a lawsuit against McDonald's for $2.7 million for spilling hot coffee on herself. Another woman I read this week decided to sue Google when Google Maps advised her to walk across the freeway in order to get to her destination, and she got hit by a car. So she thought that was Google Maps' problem for $100,000. Then this one I found very interesting. One man who lived in Oregon apparently looked a lot like Michael Jordan. And so he was constantly asked, are you Michael Jordan? Are you sure to look like Michael Jordan? And he got tired of this after a while. So he actually sued Michael Jordan. And Nike for emotional pain and suffering, $832 million. I guess some people don't actually want to be like Mike after all. A little tempted humor there. You read these things or you hear these things and you just go, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's outrageous. How is that possible that this is happening, and that sort of emotion that you have, Paul has about a hundred times that kind of emotion when he hears from this church that he planted in Corinth that the people inside this small church are suing each other. This is not a church of 10,000 people. This might be a church of a hundred people. And he's planted it, and he's left, and he's gone back to Ephesus, another church that he planted, and he hears back about some problems that the church is having, so he writes a letter. And one of the one of the problems they're having is they're suing one another. And you get a sense of his emotional temperature just on the vocabulary he uses. Look with me in verse one. The very first word in chapter in, in chapter six, verse one, is the word dare. Now, in in the ESV, it says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous? But in in Paul's phrase, and the ESV just doesn't communicate Paul's force, the first word is dare. And it's like he's saying, how dare you? he's, He's moving away from sexual tolerance that's happening in the church which Sam talked about so well last week, to uh, litigation that's happening in the church. And when he makes this shift from the end of chapter 5 to the beginning of chapter 6, the first thing he says, how dare you? Like I'm moving to the next topic and I cannot believe this. He's just stunned. And so he starts with this sort of thunderbolt corrective. Verse 5 I say this to your shame. You might remember in chapter 4, Paul was saying, I'm not saying this to shame you. I'm saying it to admonish you. I'm trying to be a little bit more gentle in my correction, not here. 
not here. I, I'm saying this to your shame. It is shameful that you are taking each other to court, probably over civil cases that are trivial. And then he says in a very sarcastic tone that's hard to pick up unless you really understand it. He says, can it be that there is no one among you wise enough? Oh, what a sting. Why? Because for the first, first four chapters, they've been saying how wise they are. They're so exceptionally wise. Look at chapter 4, uh, verse 10. We are fools, Paul's saying, for Christ's sake, but you... Oh, you are wise in Christ. You people who are so wise, you can't seem to find one single person. who You're even wiser than the apostles. It's, it's impossible for a trivial case. You can't find one person in the congregation who's wise enough to try this case. Very sarcastic, very stinging rebuke by Paul. And I can't be sure, but having read through the letter a number of times now, it gets, you get the feeling that Paul is picking up steam over the, next, over the first six chapters. He starts out, chapter 1, verse 1, I, I appeal to you brothers. See, that sounds kind of nice, right? We're brothers, we're family, and I'm just trying to make an appeal. Chapter 3, uh, you are infants. Hmm. Okay, that's a little bit more of a stinger than an appeal. Chapter 5, verse 2, you are arrogant. Okay, all right. Okay, you're hitting a little bit too close to home here, Paul. But have you ever been in this way that once you started saying something, you just got on a roll? And you just, like, you just kept building steam and building steam. And that's the way it feels like with Paul. And finally in chapter 6, he goes, how dare you? I cannot believe it. This is not I appeal to you, brothers. This is how dare you operate this way. And then notice for me in chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. This is kind of like Paul takes a breath. From chapter 1 to chapter 6, he's just been on this roll. And then in chapter 7, he says, Now the real reason I'm writing is because you wrote me with some questions. And I wonder if the, the Corinthians are going, he hadn't even answered our questions yet. And, and, and he's just been blowing us away with things we didn't even ask him about. We didn't ask him to talk to us about sexual immorality, lawsuits, and divisions. And the, the picture I get, if you're sitting in the Corinthian church at this point, having read for, through the first six chapters of the letter, is like the cartoon character guy who opens a box of explosives and, and it explodes, and then he stands up, and like his hair's back, and his eyes are wide open. I think that's how they feel in the congregation. They've had six chapters of explosions, and they're like, wow. I wonder what he's going to say about the things we actually asked him about. That's the feeling that you want to have when Paul's coming, especially into this issue of lawsuits. He is hot about this. And I, I must say, there are times and situations in all of our lives which require this kind of energy, this kind of what I would say sort of thunderous, prophetic speaking. He, he's looking 
at the people who are deceiving themselves. They're claiming to be Christians, but they're not acting like it. And he's afraid they're just fooling themselves. They've just said something, but it hasn't really changed their heart. And he's trying to say, Christians, wake up. Wake up. You're getting sucked down the drain of the world. And I don't want you to go down that drain, but you're headed that way, sort of full steam. And I'm trying to get you to get out of your slumber and say, whoa. And and in order to get out of that slumber, sometimes you need a booming voice. You need a thunderous voice to sort of wake you up out of your slumber. And I have the feeling that's what Paul is getting at here. I think that's the kind of voice he's using here. And Paul, on this again, for this particular issue of lawsuits, he realizes that the stakes are high. They're not just damaging one another. They're damaging the witness for the gospel. And so Paul's coming in like a heat-seeking missile here, saying we can't allow this to go forward even one more day. Now let's just stop and ask this question, which is really answered in John chapter 13. What's one of the greatest apologetics Christians have for the gospel? So an apologetic is a, a defense of the gospel or a display of the, the gospel. I can't quite see it. I don't quite understand it. But when I see this, then it begins to shine a light on the gospel. What is that? It's our love for one another. When you see that, you go, wow, all this diversity in this church, all this you know, gender diversity and this age diversity and this economic diversity and this ethnic diversity, and yet... They, you know, the, the world can't get along, but somehow you put this group together underneath the banner of Christ and they love each other. Wow. Who is it that has changed their life? You see what's happening? This is the main apologetic the church has. And they're taking each other to court. So Paul understands something really big is on the line. Jesus says in John 7, 17, 23, May they be brought to complete unity. This is his prayer for the church. In order to let the world know that you have sent me. The unity inside the church actually is a megaphone to the world about the gospel. So Paul understands something's at stake here. It's really big. It's not just relationships. It's also the gospel, which is why in verse 7... He says, when you, when you come to court, you've, you've already been defeated. I mean, you might win or whatever, but really you've been defeated already. So let's not do that. Let's, let's do something different. And so this is where he's trying to help us. And I want to divide the text into three different parts. First of all, first of all, you have to understand the temperature. And I've tried to describe that in the last 10 minutes. You got it? Nod your head. Yeah, okay. This, Paul's hot about this, right? And so we want to understand, okay, this is forceful. He's trying to get, get this information across. And I want to do it a little bit out of order. First of all, I want to talk about the gospel. Secondly, I want to talk about the problem, very briefly, because we've discussed most of it. And then third, the new practices. The gospel, the problem, and then new practices. 
So the gospel, chapter 6, verses 9, 9 through 11, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of those people are going to inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. So let's, let's make sure we understand the gospel because Paul, you'll notice through his letters, and particularly this letter, he's always coming back to the gospel. And the reason he's doing that is because it's like the, the needle point on the compass, that wherever you, get, you drop into any kind of situation you find yourself in or the church finds itself in, you need to pull out the compass of the gospel, and its needle is always going to point towards Jesus. If you get lost in the woods and it's dark, you have no way of having a reference point. If you pull out a compass, you can at least know, okay, this is north, and I need to go you know, south or east or west. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm going to, these situations arise in the church, and you're not really sure because there's not like a biblical passage for it. And he says, when that happens, pull out the gospel. Pull out the gospel, think about the gospel, then try to apply the gospel or practices from the gospel in this particular case, which is exactly what he's doing. And he never tires of telling people about the gospel. So let's be reminded of it again ourselves this morning. First of all, These are just the way he lays it out here. First, he wants us to understand, in in trying to understand the gospel, first, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is is like a critical first step in you and I understanding the gospel. Unrighteous people, maybe a better word, just not right. You're not right. If you're not right... You're not going to get into the kingdom of God. You just want to let that sink in. We don't want to just kind of go by. Say, that sounds pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, it's pretty uncomfortable. If you're not right, you don't get into the kingdom of God. Well, what does not right mean? Well, okay, Paul gives you some definition. Verse 10. This is what it means to be unrighteous. If any of these things are true about you, then you are unrighteous. And this is not a complete list, just kind of a summary of some things. First of all, sexual immorality. So anything outside of the boundaries, the good boundaries that God has put around sex, if you operated in any way outside of that boundary, you are unrighteous. Now, in Corinth, this is a big deal because this is a culture that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks that's very sexually dysfunctional. And so Paul's taking on sort of the biggest first, the biggest thing first, saying if you've lived outside of God's good boundaries for sex, then you fit into the category of unrighteous. Second, idolatry. You've made anything other than God the center of your life. You've exchanged God who's the creator, for something that's created. It might be money, might be a person, might be popularity, whatever that is. Then you're not right. 
Then he talks about two types of sexual immorality, those who are adulterers and those who practice homosexuality. Those are two types that fall outside of God's boundaries. Thieves, so anybody who steals something, money, answers on a test, you're not right. Greedy people, people who just, they just never have enough. They're, they're grabbers. They're not givers. Drunkards. Revilers. It's not a word we use. More like slander. You, you've slandered someone else. You've called somebody else a name. Trying to demean them. Make people look, feel small. Or swindlers or cheaters. Okay, so reading that list, doing a little self-examination... Anyone, anyone feeling good about their chances of getting into the kingdom? Uh, survey says, no, nobody's feeling good. If you're feeling good right now, then see me afterwards. How about that? I mean, the whole thing is for you to say, okay, people who aren't right don't get in. I, I, I don't think I'm right, but let's, maybe I sneak in, right? Maybe somehow. I sneak in. Well, Paul says, let me just give you some definitions in case you can, you think you can sneak in. And after the definition, you go, okay, I can't sneak in. I mean, I might not have done one of these things, but I'm guilty on several accounts here. And, and the picture I think that Paul would want us to have here is if you come to God's courtroom, and you know how a courtroom's set up. You've got the judge, and then you've got a, a, a little space and there's, a, there's what's called a bar. It's that small, you know, like waist-high wall. It's called the bar. And then you got the crowd. And in God's courtroom, one day, you're going to come, you're going to be asked, Paul Phillips, please come forward. And you, you're going to leave the crowd behind. So you can't say, yeah, I'm not so good, God, but, you know, this person here, well, I'm a lot better than them. It's just you come to the bar, you come all by yourself, Please state your name, Paul Phillips. Should you get into the kingdom of heaven? Answer on Paul Phillips's name? No. No. And 54 years of a trail of sin that I've left behind? No. I can't get in. It's like I'm standing there and saying to God, I don't just need help. I need a whole other name. I, I don't need assistance. I need another name. I need to be able to say somebody else's name in order to get me in. Does that make sense? Gospel, the gospel is not get about getting help and not tweaking your personality. It's about you need a, a, you need a totally new name. And thankfully, there is a great, great name. Verse 11. This is, this is the greatest news. See, if you're depressed at this point, then lean forward. Because there's this great word, but, verse 11. And here comes the gospel like a, like a freight train coming into this courtroom. Like me standing there all by myself. That, that God gloriously intersects my life and he says... But there's another name. 
And if you can say that name and live behind that name and trust in that name, you get in. And what is that name? Jesus Christ. He's your advocate. He's the one who stands there. And I say, don't take my name. Take his name. And he gives me his name and all of his righteousness. And then God looks at me as if he were looking at his own son and says, you can come right on in. It's, it's the greatest news in all the world that you can say somebody else's name and they open the gate and you get to come right on in. Now, this is a funny little example that just happened to me a couple of weeks ago. And he'll think it's funny that I'm even using this example. And I know I haven't asked him, so I'm just asking for forgiveness right now. But I was at a Hoggard football game a couple of weeks ago. And uh, a friend of mine, Craig Wheeler, is here. Won't make him stand up. He couldn't go. And he said, Paul, you just take my ticket, but it's at the will call booth. And I said, great, because we were going to stand on the field together. And he said, but your name isn't down there. You just have to give him my name. So I walked up and, hey, I don't, I don't have a ticket, but I'm supposed to say Craig Wheeler, and that gets me in, in the game. Right, okay. Come around here, and I got in the gate, and then at halftime, I need to go to the bathroom. But I don't have a ticket. I don't have a pass. I don't have anything. I'm just standing on the field going, uh, can't go out here, 8,000 people. And so I'm like, what am I supposed to do here? So I go to this lady who's operating the gate, and they say, hey, you can't get out, or, or if I let you out, you can't come back in. And I said, well, my name is Craig Wheeler. Oh, Mr. Wheeler, come right in. <laughs> and I thought, that's so funny. I'm using someone else's name. I'm not sure if God liked that little lie right at that moment, but... But that's beside the point. Don't, don't ruin the illustration. But I, you see what I'm saying? A gate just swung open. Oh, yes, sir, you can come right on in. That's exactly what's going to happen on the last day. I'm going to stand there and say, I'm in trouble. I need a new name. And Jesus is going to say, Paul, just say my name. That's the gospel. I can't say it any clearer than that. And then he tells you what it's like. He tries to give some description to it. He says, you are washed. What can wash away my sin? Answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. On the cross, he washes away, takes all of my sin. You are sanctified, means you're set apart for a holy life. You're supposed to live in a different way now. Because Jesus has intersected your life, now the direction of your life changes. The behavior of your life changes. And please notice verse 9, don't be deceived. What's he trying to say here? What's Paul trying to say? He's trying to say if you're calling yourself a Christian, but your behavior and direction haven't changed, then what do you need to ask? Am I really a Christian? Or just have I said some words? I want to be clear here. Your change in behavior and direction don't earn your salvation. This is where we get sort of tied up in a knot. But they do demonstrate your salvation. My, my change of direction, my change of behavior, it doesn't determine my salvation. Jesus determines that. That's the gospel. But if there's no demonstration of it, then you'd have to ask yourself, did, did I really trust in Jesus? J.C. Ryle, the great Puritan preacher, says this, Sin forsaken 
Sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. Justified, the final of those three terms, it's a legal term. You're, you're, you're counted as righteous. In high school, I had a young life leader who would say, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. So do you believe this? You're here this morning. You could be in church your whole life and not really understand the gospel. Or maybe you're a visitor. Go, okay, I've got to think about this. What am, what, am, what am I basing my whole life on? If I have to stand in the bar, by my, come through the bar and stand by myself, what am I going to say? I don't want to just say my name. What, what are you going to say? And we'd love to talk to you about it if that's something you're interested in. But if you say, yes, I do believe in the gospel, has it reshaped your direction and behavior? Because if it hasn't, then you want to revisit. Well, have I really trusted in Jesus? So that's the gospel. And you'll see why I wanted to put that first in, the, in just a few minutes. So that's the gospel. We've got to have that always clear in our mind. We've got to understand it because we get into life circumstances that you just can't turn to a Bible verse and say, here's how you do it. You just want it to, to inform your direction. Now, here's the problem. Very obvious. Chapter uh, 6, verses 1 and 2. The Christians, the, these people who have been set free in God's courtroom, from crimes of eternal significance, are now turning around on trivial matters and taking each other to court. You see why Paul's so frustrated about this. Now, now Paul, he sees that their lives are not shaped yet by the gospel, and there's probably worth just taking a moment here just to say, Paul's not saying there's never a time for a Christian to appeal to a court of law. He himself appealed to a court of law. Remember that? He wanted to appeal to Caesar, which is why he actually got shipped to Rome. So there are times that that's possible. But I think Paul's primary frustration here is that the lawsuits are trivial. That's verse 2. And then notice this word down in verse 8. They're actually meant to defraud. Some people in the church were taking some other people in the church to court to cheat them. They were using them to gain something for themselves. One commentary says this, the Roman criminal law, so there's a difference between criminal law and civil law. Criminal law practiced in this period was relatively fair and objective, but that wasn't the case with civil law, which is the kind of cases the Corinthians were bringing. In civil cases, listen, judges expected favors or money for a favorable verdict, which resulted in people with wealth and connections got more favorable verdicts. So do you see what's happening? The wealthy, connected people in the church are suing the poor people and cheating them out of their own things to line their own pockets. So Paul is like, how dare you? I can't stand it. I can't believe you're doing this. You, you who've been in the law, the courtroom, and got another name. 
You people who have been set free, you're coming on these trivial cases and you're using somebody else in the church for your own pleasure or power. Whenever someone in the church, especially someone in power, uses other people in the church for their own pleasure, it's particularly disgusting. And unfortunately, the church is not free from doing this. So Paul's hot about this problem. He wants to give us a new practice. That's our third and final point here. Paul's not unrealistic that inside this new community that there's going to suddenly be no more conflict. I want you to say that clearly. Because if you come to church and say, wow, there's conflict there. Yeah, there's conflict in every church. <laughs> in case you haven't noticed, you didn't stop sinning just by coming through the door. We didn't have like the, you know, the sin cleanser as you come through the door. Everything's perfect. Doesn't work that way. You got conflict of yourself in yourself. Some of you, I'm not looking at anybody here, drove in a car full of conflict this morning. And you're just smiling and gritting your teeth, wondering what you're going to say. You're not even listening to the sermon. You're just thinking, I'm going to have this great comeback. Oh, I can't wait to say it when I get back in the car. Why do I know this? I, it's, that's what I've done before. So he understands there's going to be conflict in this new community called the church. He understands there's going to be disagreement. And so we could just go to Matthew 18 and read Jesus' instructions, but I just want to stay here and highlight these three practices that Paul gives us, and we can use them for ourselves. First of all, verse 5, he gives this new practice. When a dispute arises in your congregation, somebody should be wise enough in your congregation to help you out. I mean, if you can't work it out, Matthew 18, one-on-one, then there's got to be somebody inside your church that's smart enough to navigate. It doesn't mean they're smart enough to know all the right answers, but help you navigate going forward. And here, I, I just couldn't encourage you anymore to use the, in the best way the body of Christ if you have some kind of conflict. There are so many great people who've had that kind of conflict, had success going through this kind of conflict. And it could be you. Could you be you in a sin? It could be you in a spouse. It could be you and somebody else in the church. It could be you in your business. Any of those things. Please take advantage because when you have conflict and you know this, it doesn't magically go away because of time. It can get buried, but it doesn't just magically go away. And especially if those of you who are married, you can bury a little seed of conflict in your first year. That if that doesn't get addressed 20 years later, you get a forest. It's not just a single tree. It doesn't come up as a single tree. It comes up like a forest. So if you're saying, hey, I've been married for a year or two or however long, I've got this conflict. I don't want a forest then please just get some help. You can ask me. I can put you in touch with people who can help you. The second point, settle the dispute. Notice that? Settle the dispute. Verse 5. See, the goal in the church is different than the goal in the courtroom. The goal in the courtroom is to try to bring justice, to get it right. Who's fair? Who's right? Who's wrong? What should be apportioned? That's their goal. But that's not the only goal in church conflict. It's to settle the dispute. It's to to bring two people in the same family who are of conflict back together. 
It's not just say, hey, I was right and you were wrong or this was fair. It's, it's I'm, trying to, I'm trying to live in a family. I'm trying to bring these two parties back together. And you know, everybody here knows how hard that is because Thanksgiving's coming up. And every Thanksgiving and Christmas. Hey, you going to go see your relatives? Oh, gosh, yes. <laughs> Nobody says, oh, it's so wonderful. Uh, two days, that's all I can do. Or one meal, that's all we got in our family. And it's sad. It's a hard thing. Why? Because conflicts have been buried. They haven't gotten resolved in a lot of families. And I just want to say, in this family, there's going to be conflict. We're not surprised by it. We're trying to settle the disputes. They're not going to just go away. And I just wonder if there's any conflict for you, especially for someone in the church, that's over, but it never got settled. So this might be a time just to say, I, I, you know, we're not necessarily going to come into to an agreement, but we're going to at least hear each other and say, okay, we, we got it heard, and let's, now let's try to move together. Does that make sense? Third practice, verse 7, it's better to suffer wrong. One commentary, better to lose money than lose a brother. Better to lose money than lose your testimony as well. See, there will be times when love has to be bigger than the law, when grace has to be bigger than justice. And you have to suffer for injustice. Now, what would give you the strength to do that? The answer is always easy here. See, that's why I started with the gospel. Because if you go and say, that's not right. I'm right. And there, I'm going to have to pay for their being wrong. Guess what? That's the gospel. And when you do it, see, when you do it, a bright light for the gospel comes on. Because somebody around says, I know they're suffering unjustly. What gives them the fuel and fire to do it? Jesus does. But when you come and say in front of a law court, well, I got justice. And you don't have any mercy and you don't have any grace. No light for the gospel. So the new practice is first, there's got to be people that can help us out inside of our congregation. Two, we're not trying to just get things over or get things that were just fair. We're, we're trying to bring people together. We're trying to settle a dispute. We're trying to be a family. And it, sometimes it's better to suffer wrong than to try to move forward in a way that would, would damage your witness. Let me conclude by... Uh, Just saying, you you feel Paul's heat here, his frustration. And it's not just because they're hurting each other. They're hurting their witness for the gospel. And this final quote by David Garland, one of the commentaries, listen closely. A community, a church, which contains within itself the divisions which characterize the world. A community which contains within itself the divisions which characterize the world, has no power to transform the world. 
because the contradiction between their theory and practice is too visible. Do you see if all the things that are present in the world about division and lawsuits and sexual immorality, if they're all present inside, you can't speak to it because you haven't been changed, you haven't been transformed yourself. So first of all, has, have, have you gotten in your mind a settled account between you and the Lord? That's the most important question you can answer. Every person here, every person on the planet will one day, their name will be called. Your name will be called. And you won't be able to have a parent, a friend, or a crowd. It's just going to be you and the Lord. State your name. Why should you come into the kingdom of God? Please have Jesus' name on your lips. Please, I'm imploring you. Do not say your name. So is that settled? Secondly, if you say, well, yes, has the gospel shaped your behavior and your direction? Is it really changing? Not, you're not perfect. I'm not looking for perfection. I'm just saying, yeah, things are changing. If not, you might want to go back to the first question. Don't be deceived. Easy to fool me. Maybe easy to fool yourself. Impossible to fool the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, what a what a challenging passage, and it and it and it gets into our soul because we're all people in conflict in some way. Conflict with ourselves, conflict with our spouse, conflict in the church, conflict in the neighborhood or business or world that we live in and and we're saying we're we really are saying we want to be shaped by the gospel but man at the moment of conflict it's so difficult to keep that in mind so we we've got to be reminded again of the blood of jesus christ and that what that's what has set us free and then we can go live and we can really love our neighbor as you have loved us Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.